Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest on today's episode is the founder of Necrosoft Games, a brilliant video game writer, former editor of Game Developer Magazine and Gamer Sutra, Brandon Sheffield. Now you may remember a few weeks ago I spoke with Matthew Kumar. Uh, Matthew and Brandon are, are good friends and this is a, a really nice sort of companion episode to that. Uh, they talk about similar games at similar points and, and kind of similar to Matthew, the, the, what's most evident I think is a real deep love of games and, and discovery and kind of finding those undiscovered gems. You know, one of the big thrills about doing this show is speaking to people and discovering games I'd never heard of and how just amazing and, and rich the, the kind of history of video games is. It was a real thrill to talk to brandon and and he's got one of the most kind of uh esoteric cvs um we'll, we'll get you'll get get to hear that later on in the episode it's just his kind of list of various games he's worked on in various uh, levels is just it's astonishing it's, it's a really brilliant chat i i think you're very much going to enjoy it um i hope you have been enjoying the show um numbers seem to be good people seem to be enjoying it please do as always Tell a friend, rate and review on iTunes. I know I say this every week, but nobody ever nobody ever does it. That's not true. Some people do it sometimes. Um, but honestly, it, it's such a big help. It really helps kind of draw more people into the show. So if you've got two minutes, like give it a rating, give it a review, tell a friend, tweet about it, whatever. Um, it's massively appreciated and, and goes to help grow the, the audience of the show as much as possible. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. There's also a Patreon page. If you have the money and the inclination, you can uh, donate to the show. It's patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. All donations very gratefully received and going to making the show as good as it possibly can be. As always, thanks so much for downloading the show. I really hope you uh, enjoy it. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. So how, um, how are you finding Clash Royale, actually, incidentally? Because I've just started playing that quite recently, and I think it's brilliant. Well, so I think that's definitely the time to find it brilliant is when you first start playing it. Okay. Um, it's, I think that the idea is great and I really like, I like the concept of a multiplayer RTS essentially. Yeah. Uh, or sort of like a versus tower defense almost. But, um, the their need due to it being a free to play game to constantly introduce new units has kind of a i mean it's got its ups and downs yeah and at a certain point they the things that they started introducing got faster and faster making the game more reactionary and as that started to happen I started to find it massively more frustrating because essentially just a whole bunch of cards became, if not useless, 
not useful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it really started in earnest around the time they introduced the elite barbarians. Okay. Uh, who are extremely fast, extremely strong, and not as prone to distraction as they could be. And because of their speed, they can get over, you know, depending on how much lag you have, they can get over to your tower before you can pretty much do anything. So that was a mistake. They realized it was a mistake and did some, you know, counter fixes to it, but not enough. And ultimately, units that they've introduced since then have been either much faster to deal with that or have much more HP to deal with that. And yeah. so it winds up, it just changed the game all, a lot from something that felt more tactical to me to something that feels more more like reacting to cards that are put down. That's interesting. I, I don't think I've played it enough because I don't, I don't recognize new cards that have been added because I'm still kind of going up through the ranks where I'm discovering new cards as I go. Um, yeah and there's that de- but there definitely is like the best cards like there yeah, and there are lots well, of other cards kind of thing yeah it's 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 you know you can you can make do with the cards that you want to use which is basically how i play which is why i get so frustrated yeah um but you know i've been playing i've been playing the game for a year i actually managed to corner the guy who does the card balancing at um at gdc oh interesting <clears throat> yeah, he did not want to talk to me, but he was trapped. <laughs> so he did talk to me, and he did agree with me on a lot of the things. He's, he agreed that the uh, the elite barbarians situation was embarrassing, and you know he. I don't know if you know the the zap card, but zap is like a <clears throat> it's the, the quickest the big lightning bolts, right? It's well, it's not the big ones, it's a tiny one. Okay. The big lightning bolts are lightning that costs 6 and zap costs uh 2 and is a, it does a lot less damage. But they it's it's the fastest area of effect. Okay. So it can act, it can and it does a slight stun for a second. Uh well, not a second, but for uh yeah, the time that it's attacking them. And uh they also nerfed that, and I was like, what are you guys thinking? Like, you, you keep making this game faster and faster, and then you nerf the only fast area of effect. And then they're like, oh, well, maybe we'll make some of the other area of effect stuff faster to uh, compensate. So ultimately, the game is just getting pushed faster because of one decision that they made at a certain point. And yeah, it's weird. But that's balancing video games. I mean, I probably wouldn't have done a better job. I would have messed it up some other way. Yeah, I mean, and it is like, but it's a necessity of the business model, you know. They just they can't they can't stop and say, okay, this is the game now. It's like yeah, chess. If you had to keep introducing new pieces to chess, yeah, that would be garbage. It'd be the worst. <laughs> It'd be the worst. Although I would quite yeah. like to see it. Just I think someone should try that as an experiment. Just like update chess every month with new features and new pieces. That'd be great. Do, well, like, I haven't played bad chess yet. Oh, really bad chess? Yeah, no, that's that's yeah. excellent actually. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it gets into that territory, but no, it just randomizes everything. So it is. Ah. It's kind of a little like that in the in the sense that you know you can just immediately be super overpowered. Um, but it's just quite interesting. It does throw up kind of random, um, unexpected kind of games from time to time. 
Uh, maybe I should share that. You should. No, it's really good. Um, yeah. Well, let's do, for the sake of uh, formalities, let's do a formal introduction, Brandon. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm Brandon Sheffield. I'm the creative director of Necrosoft Games, and we make some tiny tiny video games that sometimes some people play. We've got a game called Gunhouse. We've got another game that's not out called Gunsport. We have a game that's out in beta form called Oh Dear. That's a pseudo 3D driving game. I didn't describe the other games. Well, whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, used to, I used to run Game Developer Magazine when that existed. I've also been on Gamasutra.com as senior contributing editor. And I've done a whole bunch of other tiny things. Um, I'm currently doing the writing for an anthology of arcade games, the name of which I cannot say. Oh, that sounds exciting. It's it's kind of exciting. I do like that. And and you are obviously you wrote a a, a series of excellent comics. Oh yeah, yeah. I I did a couple of web web comics there until my my uh, artist became too popular, <laughs> <laughs> and now she doesn't have time to do it anymore because she's you know she's got four paid web comics a week. So the the one that the one that doesn't pay kind of has to fall by the wayside which is understandable absolutely um are you still kind of working at game studio are you still running that essentially are you still the editor oh no uh i still have my name on the masthead which is convenient for me because sometimes i can go to events for free uh, <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately i write two articles a month for them because i feel like it because sometimes I get real fired up, fired up about some issue in the video game industry. Less so recently because the world has me a lot more fi- fired up. It's, it's ridiculous. Let's talk right. about video games, Brandon. Um, right. So if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? So I can't really, but I can give a smattering of thoughts that might be i uh when i was 14 i had a concussion that gave me temporary amnesia and i really intense i'm I'm into (laughs) it okay and as a result most of my childhood is non-linear in my memory so what came before what i'm not really sure oh man that is I mean, that's not exciting. That's kind of obviously quite traumatic. But it also uh, sounds like the premise to like a new Netflix series or something. Sure. Well, uh, another amusing thing about that is I have a lot of memories of childhood that are in third person. Oh, wow. And I suspect that that is because I have been... Those are things that I was told by my mother and then repeated that yeah. this is a thing that, that happened to me or that I did so I don't I don't I remember it like envisioning a child and these things are happening to that child anyway no that's really interesting I need to ask a quick question about that what about um old photographs like how how does that I mean obviously like if I look at a photograph of me as a kid I guess I don't I'm not like oh I remember that day it's just me as a kid so 
but the, the, yeah. does it feel kind of like i'd still recognize like oh, i remember that top or i remember that toy that i'm probably playing with is that kind of a bit garbled well yeah i was not super i wasn't a big photo liker so the there are not that many photos of me from a cert, from like especially in like middle school or whatever and later there aren't very many photos okay but so so all of the real childhood photos are pretty much that general experience where i look at it and i'm like well there's i guess that's me i don't know <laughs> um, also i looked really different as a as a child i was i was blonde till i was five and then me too weirdly had, had different color eyes and then they all that all shifted around are you sure you're the same person can you be certain uh, no there's no way to know there's no way to know uh, okay so from this kind of amazing kind of puddle of memories like what sort of sticks out to you as being these formative video game experiences i suppose so i've got a a couple of things that i can remember one is i may have first seen video games uh via the nes at a friend's house i had a friend with leukemia and he was going through chemotherapy and so he was like chubby and bald and stuff and he was he was pretty depressed but we had been friends since we were born basically so i would go over there sometimes after his chemo sessions to because it cheered him up to have other people around but he also got a new nes game every time he went through chemo so <laughs> I think, or I did a session. Um, yeah. And I think that that may have been my first interaction with video games. I think he had, like, honestly, I don't, I, I was never really a big Nintendo person, so I don't remember if there was a Fantasy Zone on there, but I feel like the, there may have been something like that. There was a stupid balloon fight. Yeah. Game blows. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> doesn't i just i'm just not into it um so anyway uh we played there was some a fantasy stuff zone in, on the nets i just googled it right okay uh yeah so that i think there was a smurfs game anyway none of those games were any good that i remember from that time there was also a friend who had a master system and uh i don't think he i think he had one cartridge that had like that jungle fight thing in it or was that packed into the system there was it like a snail on game. the version of it there was the snail game and there was alex kid and there was the jungle i think it was called jungle strike yeah uh so it, i played one of those things and i was like i don't know what this is um <laughs> but my first experience really owning a game console and playing video games on it is after the crash my dad was able to, you know, like they were, people were dumping 2600s um, yeah. everywhere. And my dad was at a thrift store and there was like a Atari 2600 with like 40 games and the and an Intellivision with the Intellivoice and a bunch of games. And he got both of those for 20 bucks each. Amazing. And so I, I had this just ancient... It was old by the current standards. Yeah. But that that's what I had. So I played I tended more toward Intellivision than the twenty six hundred. 
And so I wound up playing things like Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, the the first person one. Um, and I played Beam Rider and some other stuff, uh, Night Stalker. Yeah. Anyway, that's that. Those kinds of things. But did you like? Were you asking for that, or was that just your dad saw these things and they're like, "Oh, here you go." Like, did you kind of? Were you craving for video games, or was it just like another toy or something for you? I don't remember that. Okay. But um, I do know that I didn't have consistent access to a television until I was eight, and. So, and it was around then, maybe nine, eight, nine, that I was given this stuff, which was, uh, it was like my, my parents, uh, they separated. And so I was with the TV a lot more because my mom's at work and whatever. Um, so I think my dad gave me this thing as something else to entertain me while I was alone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't think I was craving it, but once I had it, I was like, I don't know, I'll play this. Yeah, totally. But I I got... control the TV. Yeah, I got got teased slightly in elementary school because I had a... had in, in television, and people were like, the NES is much better. And I'm like, I don't know, man. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty much how that conversation went because i didn't have one so <laughs> i was like i get i guess and i didn't know about the I, I wasn't seeing commercials for video games i wasn't like uh looking at magazines or anything a whole bunch of my friends that got really into game stuff they were you know they knew when sonic was coming out they were like i'm gonna be there in the store i'm gonna i'm gonna get that sonic because this is like this is like the new mario yeah it's gonna be better than mario i didn't know you know, I got I got a Super Nintendo late high school, and late high school for me is 1999. So you know, uh, well, how, I was how not... come do you think? Like, how come it didn't kind of grab you? Because obviously, like, it's had a big impact on your life going forward. So, what what was well, what was it that didn't hook you? It so it did grab me, but not like I was always getting the less popular console because we didn't have money and I I started working um regularly at age uh 10 11 okay and and I saved up money to buy video games for myself and you know I had seen a turbo graphics at a friend's house and I was like that's pretty cool I liked Keith Courage and so I wound up buying one of those because people didn't want it and it was 20 bucks or whatever. Yeah. So I, like I went fully down that route. Once the TurboGrafx CD came out, the Turbo Duo, I saved up money for that and got a little Christmas money from my grandma and I was able to spend the, the hundred bucks on a Turbo Duo and a few games. So I was really into it but all of the the way i would find out is i would found out about stuff is i was go to i would go to the game store and i would look at packages or i would talk to the staff but it was always 
you know, I almost never bought anything new. The, I, I think I didn't buy anything new until uh, probably 1998 because, you know, by then, by 1998, I was onto the Saturn because, again, that was the, the cheaper console. And, you know, the, this website called Saturn World was closing down because the Saturn was going to go away. Yeah. And as a parting shot, they were like, all these new games that are coming out for the Saturn, here's what you should get. You should definitely get Pan's Dragoon Saga because it's going to be awesome. Uh, you should get Burning Rangers because it's really cool. So I pre-ordered those, and and I actually bought those new. And I started to buy imports as well. I mean, the, the way you're describing this, like it is, was it by, by the Saturn stage, I suppose, like this can't have purely just been a financial choice. Like there, there must have been part of it that was like, I like having this kind of weird, more obscure stuff, like especially with the oh, yeah. internet and stuff, because you're, you, you know, you, you'd start to find your your crowd. Like when you were younger, did you have kind of, you know, you said there were other kids playing games. Like, did you form groups with them? Like, did you bond with people over games, or was it just like, no, I'm I'm over here with the weird stuff, and I'm I'm cool with that? It was much more like I'm over here with the weird stuff. Um, the I don't really remember any other kids that were super into games there were people that were just kind of like yes i have games or whatever yeah but it it was always you know that there weren't people that were just like mad for games that i knew at all until the internet and by the time i got to the internet my tastes had already skewed in this uh turbo graphics pc engine saturn direction you know um uh, my stepbrother had a had a Genesis and so we played we played that and you know I knew Sonic and I liked it and Gunstar Heroes I bought Gunstar Heroes back in the day um and so I had a, I had a specific idea about what games were or should be and the the more the the popular stuff started to be the popular stuff the less the games that I wanted were represented and did you, like, b- before the internet, were there, like, magazines or was there any kind of group mentality? Like, like b- because for me growing up, I-, I think I'm probably a little bit older than you, like, g- games weren't cool. Like, nobody played games. It was something you kind of almost hid a bit because it was, it was kind of a, a, that kind of weird and geeky. But then when, for me anyway, and for a lot of people I've spoken to, it was magazines with this thing where you're like, oh, there are people that are just as into this as i am and then ultimately like web forums and stuff where it all kind of changed so did you have that or were you just kind of purely i just like this stuff like did you have any kind of i guess like that older kid in a record shop or something who's like no this is the really good stuff you know yeah no uh not really so i you know every once in a while i would come across a magazine or something because like when we would fly down to visit my grandmother in Florida or whatever. Um, for the flight, my mom would let me pick out a magazine to buy. And so I would get a game thing and I would read about some stuff. But <clears throat> I didn't really have the concept of there being a whole bunch of people out there that are into this. It just was like, it just felt like a thing that was there. I don't. It's It's hard to describe because... Um, it's so different from all of my friends' experiences that, I mean, the friends I have now yeah. who were, 
super into the stuff. And even, you know, I, I later found that a lot of my friends who weren't actually that into games, they had subscriptions to magazines and whatever else. I think in briefly in high school, I had a subscription to Game Informer because it came free with my Funko Land discount card. Nice. Um, and I looked at that and then like sometimes there was, uh, I do remember there was an issue where there was some like analysis of what was better, the PlayStation or the Saturn. And they were ranking it by like, okay, what about shooters? What about RPGs, uh, fighting games, et cetera. It was by genre. And they basically put the PlayStation on top in every arena. And I was like, screw you guys. You, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, do you think you did start wearing it as kind of a, a badge of honor? Like, you know, you guys don't get it kind of thing, like in that classic way that teenagers do about most things. I would say I didn't actually start to wear it as a ban- badge of honor until college when I started my web my website, Insert Credit, um, and found other like-minded people plus i was pretty i was pretty firm in my opinions at at that time and i also was you know going to school for film criticism so yeah i i was you know i was hopped up on ideas over there so i definitely was like i wasn't like this this is this is what a true game is but i was like this is what this is what I like, and I have reasons for it. Absolutely, and if you don't have yeah. reasons for what you like, then that's too bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, obviously, if you go into to uni for film criticism, like, did you have any kind of notion of there being people who make games and, and an interest in maybe doing that one day? Did that occur to you at that point? I certainly had a knowledge of, you know, people making games because I started going to E3 in 1999, uh, or 98, I don't remember. Um, I, it must have been 99. And How come you went to E3 like, so so early? I'm guessing you were quite young then. I was. It was. I was. I guess I was 18 or maybe 19. Um, I, <clears throat> I got. I was writing for a website starting in the end of, end of high school. Okay. I was writing for a small website. There was a guy who developed Jaguar games and had a kind of reviews site called Hero Graphics, like like hieroglyphics or hieroglyphics, however you say oh, Okay, okay. And I was just, I think I was, I think I must have been 17 when I started writing for that because I remember saying something along the lines of, you probably don't want to let a 17-year-old start writing for you, but let me explain why, or uh, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, I got to E3 through that, and then I wound up working for some other sites that were also not very good. And then in 2001, I started my own website called Insert Credit, which became quite popular. That's how Matthew Kumar and I know each other. Yeah. Uh, more or less, well, we know each other from a Neo Geo Pocket forum originally, but this anywho. has come up on the show. We'll get we'll get to that, I think, in shortly. Yeah. But like, so, what 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 prompted that though? Like, th- this kind of if you weren't kind of reading the magazines and stuff, was it just the internet? And you know, when you're that age, when the internet comes out, it's like oh, I can I can make things. Like, why why games? Was there like a specific game or a specific thing you read that kind of pushed you in that direction? I would say 
No, I have always been, though, a voracious consumer of media. Yeah. So when, when I was, when I, like, when computer labs opened up in my school, uh, I would sometimes get to, I'd get to school early because I had to, I had to take three buses to get there. So, um, sometimes I would be like a half hour early and sometimes I would be late, but, um, in the library, there was a, a computer that nobody was ever using in the morning, and I would just, I would look up, like metal bands. I would just like do a, I don't know, dog pile search or whatever we had at the time, um, and just research metal bands and and look and see what there was and what they were about, and read reviews of things, and then you know later when I'd be in in the shop browsing the the cassette the three for a dollar cassette tapes, uh, I would be like oh yeah I heard of this one and yeah I'd pick that out, and <clears throat> it was similar with movies and games. I would learn about some things mostly through independent research on the internet, and then I would go to stores and I would browse and I'd be like well I heard of this company, or uh, you know, this looks like the kind of game that I would like. And it was, it was mostly, it, at least it felt like it was mostly my own research. I was just going into a store, looking at everything that was there and picking things out of it. I've even, even now I like going to thrift stores with my girlfriend and we just spend, you know, 45 minutes in there. She's looking at um, clothes. I look at clothes too, but men's selection of clothing for a person it's no fun. Of, of my size. No, I, I enjoy it. It's just they don't have enough stuff that's my size usually because I'm uh, I'm slim. I'm I'm not I'm small for an American. And <laughs> so like I can I can look through all the clothes in about five, ten minutes. But so then I wind up kind of deeply browsing the the C D game movie sections and just looking at all this stuff and I feel like I learn a lot that way and sometimes you come upon some hidden surprises and things absolutely no I mean that experience I remember when I first got the internet like one of the first things I remember being completely blown away by and it seems so stupid now but it was the IMDB I was just I was obsessed with the IMDB I was like I can I can pick a film I like and then I can find the director and then I can find all the other films they've done and then I can search for those in like video shops yeah. and stuff while they were clearing out that was that was kind of while they was transitioning to DVD and I used to work in a, a blockbuster video and it was brilliant because people would bring in like literally like ma massive boxes of uh, old VHS tapes that we would buy for like 50 pence each. And there would right. be some amazing sort of hidden treasures in amongst them. The stuff that probably, you know, wouldn't see the light of day except on obscure kind of curated torrent sites or something. Yeah. Um, I also lately have been looking for VHS tapes that are not like stuff you can't find on DVD or streaming streaming services, a lot of that kind of '80s garbage just never, it never, <laughs> it never left the VHS world. And, no, it's uh, amazing. It's like proper archaeology. You find in so many hidden gems, and and you get to see like really bad, enjoyable films in the way they were kind of originally meant to be. You know, not not in kind of 
wink to the camera way but in a genuine like these people are all trying their absolute best and this is what we have and it's amazing yeah and to be fair most of them are pretty bad but some of them oh yeah no but they are pretty bad but that's kind of part of the appeal in some cases sure um so, so what sort of stuff were you writing about for um the hero graphics stuff like was there did you have a niche already like were you were there games uh, no, that inspired well, you to of, write yeah. about them no I, I i was gonna say i didn't but then i realized that i did uh sort of so like i i wrote you know basic reviews for them and whatnot but at, at one point um you know, at E3, I saw Stretch Panic there. Okay. And and I was like, "Hey, dude, to the editor in chief, like, I wanna I wanna do a review of this game." And he's like, "I don't know, I don't know what that game is. I've never heard of this company." I was like, "Oh man, it's Treasure. Treasure's cool. They made Gunstar Heroes. It's a good thing." He's like, "I don't know about this game. Seems weird." I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna do it." So I did it, and I wrote wrote a review of it, and then we put it up, and he's like, "Hey, man, that review got us a lot of traffic. Good job." <laughs> Amazing. And. uh <clears throat> because there weren't a lot of people writing about Stretch Panic at E3, what was it, 2000 or whatever. It was yeah, it was yeah. an early PlayStation 2 game. It was called uh, could have been. Freak Out in the UK for people listening in the UK, uh, which isn't as good of not. a name, to be honest, but yeah. No, it's not. And and the game is a bit, I mean... I never liked it, but I, I liked how it looked, and I liked... It's one of those games where it's really fun to describe to somebody, but it's not necessarily yeah. that good to play. Well, it it piqued my imagination because you could, you know, mess with anything in the world. Yeah. And uh, the game, the ideas that the game presented came together for me when there was like some boss character shooting at me or something. And I picked up the ground and used it as a shield in front of me. And I was like, all right, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's amazing. So just like the, the premise of the game is it's kind of, it's like a 3D platformer, but you can everything is deformable basically and so you use that to beat enemies and navigate the world and stuff by pulling yeah, you, and stretching things right you use your scarf to that's it the scarf yeah to yeah you get a demonic scarf that you can use to deform the world uh pull things around and pull yourself around and um you know pull pull on something and then move around and then let go so that it snaps you off in a direction and makes you fly somewhere it's kind of a mess, but it's yeah, interesting. It's, so it's, it's an, a lovable mess. Yeah. So I did ha- kind of have, I had a direction already, uh, to some extent, and it only, only considered continued further in that direction. I would say. What about when, um, when you're in university? Uh, like, were there? Did you meet people there that you kind of bonded with, or were there, there games that kind of you know people shared in dorms or? Um, I bonded with one guy, and that's who I started insert credit okay with. uh his name's vincent diamante he's the audio director for that game company yeah at, at present and he there was this guy who was super christian and he was going around trying to i don't know it was like missionary work or something he was trying to introduce everybody to each other in this dorm based uh, wh- wh- on where is this just to give it some geography uh, this, this is the university of southern california in los angeles okay a school to which i went because i got a scholarship and not for any other reason but anywho they uh this guy josh 
he saw that I had a Dreamcast and Vince had a Dreamcast. And this was before the release of the Dreamcast in the US. Okay. He and I had both brought our Japanese Dreamcasts to school. And he was like, you guys both have Dreamcasts. You should meet up with each other and share games. And so we did. Um, I We both had this game, uh, Puyo Puyon. No, wait, I had it. He didn't have it yet. It's uh, the fourth in the Puyo Puyo series. Well, the fourth in the main line. Yeah. And I really liked it, and I'd been playing it a bunch. But Vince, unbeknownst to me, was the uh, Maryland Puyo Puyo champion. <laughs> <laughs> and so we played it. For the first time together, you know, I didn't know anybody. I was feeling real awkward at school. This is, the, I'm talking about like the first few weeks of college. Okay. Um, so, you know, I was, I was feeling like a space alien in this place. Um, and so Vince is like one of the first people I wind up hanging out with. And we're playing Puyo Puyo. And I beat him like 70% of the time. And he was visibly pretty mad about it. <laughs> and and he's like, Lend me this game, give me two weeks, and I'll and I'll be back. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So he goes off and he practices. And uh he comes back in two weeks and then he basically he beats me nine t- games out of ten okay. after that. because uh, he's he's got his chops back, but he doesn't just do it in he doesn't just beat me he he likes i don't know if you've played much puyo puyo i have yeah i have all right but you can set up these massive chains yeah it's a for people who don't know it's a versus puzzle game where you you know you're you're matching colors and trying to create chains uh to drop garbage on the other side as as is traditional with those but anyway um you know, he would set up this huge, insane, massive chain, and then he'd put the controller on the floor and say, controller is down, and, then, <laughs> and, and, and beat me while the controller is on the floor because he's set up this insane combo. Uh, so uh, that he was, he was being a bit of a jerk, and that was, <laughs> how, that was how we met. But it was... Vince and I shared a lot of games, and I learned about some... You know, I had a Saturn with me, too. I learned about some Saturn games that I hadn't known before, including my my favorite 2D fighting game of all time, Oscar 120% Limited. Yep. This, this, I, I should preface this part by saying that I spoke to Matthew a few weeks ago, and he, he said there were three games that he wanted to mention, um, and he, he sniped you with two of them. That was one of them. The other one was... Uh, Oh, Garudan Blade it, Blow. It was, probably. yeah, it was. It was, yeah. and then he said, "I'll leave him the." Was it Land Riders, Land Stalkers? Oh no, it's Landmaker. Landmaker, Landmaker. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I, I looked up those both those games, and they look incredible. Yeah, yeah. See these these kinds of this is the kind of uh, I mean I'm I'm making a sideline here, but these games are all games that we found basically by accident um <clears throat> there wasn't a community for oscar 120 percent in the u.s there wasn't uh 
Garoden break blow is still not a thing that people really know about very much. It's just like sometimes you you get something crosses your path or you get it for cheap. Um, you know, back back in college, there were uh, like about 40 miles south, there's a town called Torrance. And at the time, there were four like Japan-specific video game shops within two square miles. In this one little town? Yeah, it's because Torrance had a lot of Japanese manufacturing branches there. So like there was a Toyota office, there's a Nissan office, and and also some, you know, non-automotive, but those are the ones that I remember. Yeah. And so they had a pretty large... Japanese community. Some folks that I went to college with, they grew up in high schools where, you know, everybody spoke some measure of Japanese, uh, which was interesting and weird. But anyway, at the time, there were four of these. And so, you know, I could go and look at, see what games were there and be like, well, I've managed to save 20 bucks this, this month. What what can I buy for that? And then I would just buy some, some random, cheap things. And and then when you take it home and play it, and then it turns out it's actually really good. And and more than that, like, it's good. And nobody else really knows about it. You get to feel like you've discovered it and like you found this treasure. Absolutely. And, and it's lovely. So Landmaker, which was the third game, that's. Uh, I bought a Taito F3 board for my arcade machine. Is this still in, it's still in university? No, this this is much later. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, this, I was I was in Japan at the time buying a buying this Taito F3 board. They used to be it used to be that they had so many of those boards, like the main board, that if you bought any Taito F3 game, they would give you the main board for free. Um, at, that's very different now, but even at, at that time, the the main board was only thirty bucks. But Amazing. I bought I bought this game Landmaker because it was the cheapest game that they had that wasn't like a quiz game. Yeah, and so it, it's a Taito versus puzzle thing where you're you're shooting these little uh, triangle, tri- I mean uh, diamond shaped bits of land upward into a uh to try to form larger diamonds yeah and it's uh it's a little hard to explain without showing it but it's it's just this really well put together interestingly balanced not perfectly but interestingly balanced um versus puzzle game that has a mechanic that i haven't seen elsewhere and i just wound up playing it because it was one of the two games I had for this arcade board. And at first I was like, eh, this, this is fine. But then I started to really get into it. And it turns out it's like a really super awesome competitive versus puzzle game that has a system that hasn't been replicated. And that's always lovely to find. Do you know what's weird is, I, as you were describing that there, I, I, I think I have played this game. And... But I, I I would only ever have played it on an emulator. So while you're talking about, you know, you're going, you've got this town nearby in university and you can discover all these 
sort of crazy japanese imports and stuff all these undiscovered gems like i feel like i had a similar experience but in a much more kind of disposable way because suddenly there was emulation like when i was about 18 i think is when all the original emulations sort of kicked off the big time and, and you would be able to you know you'd swap kind of full main rom sets and stuff in uh, in college and things and and you i would just sit and i would just because i didn't have any other consoles at the time i'd sold everything to buy a, a guitar and stuff and i would just sit and scroll through every game and play as many games as i could and and you know to the point where i just play whatever and you you would discover these weird little amazing gems but because there was also another three thousand games to play you'd be like oh that was cool and go back to the next one i suppose the act of discovering it gives you much more sense of ownership and, and willingness to put time in i suppose yeah it it depends because my friend frank Cifaldi, who is doing a game preservation in, mm-hmm. initiative right now his experience is sort of similar to yours because you know he started uh, dumping unreleased NES ROMs a really long time ago. So he's really ROMs and emulation are something he find really finds really important. But also, when he was going off to like a, a conference or something, he would bring an original Xbox full of NES ROMs and just set it up in a hotel and just play random games and stuff. So for him, it he really liked that kind of discovery more than going to a shop and buying a thing. Uh, I, I somehow am more in the, in the, the tangible space for whatever reason, but it's, it, it definitely can be a similar kind of experience, I guess. I do find though that for myself, I purposefully don't buy things like the 256 in one MVS cartridge for my, for my, um, you know, my MVS for my arcade, because I know that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna devote the time when I have option paralysis, then I basically won't do anything. Yeah. I have, I have nights at home, like some, sometimes I'm, I'm at home by myself, which is lovely. And when that happens, I feel like, okay, I've got to make the most efficient, fun use of this time that I have to myself. And sometimes I do a great job. And other times I wind up doing absolutely nothing the entire night because I'm thinking about what's what's the thing that's going to make me most happy right now. Uh, and what about in two hours? Because I have to plan for then too, because just in like... I want to get as much stuff packed into this night as I possibly can, which is ridiculous. So for me, no, it's a very having, familiar feeling. Having a whole bunch of ROMs is just is just like I don't know. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play that. But so recently, I've set up my there's a garage downstairs in in my place that was a garage and now is more of a hangout place and. Just in the last few months, I managed to put up shelves on all the walls, and I've got, you know, basically all my movies, all my CDs, and a lot of my video games up on the wall. So <clears throat> I can, you know, knowing myself and how I prefer to browse and look at things, I have everything alphabetized, but I can just go up to my PlayStation 2 wall and be like, all right, I feel like playing a PlayStation 2 game, and I can just look through everything that I got. 
and be like, what, what, what's, what's jumping out to me? And, you know, recently I was like, I feel like playing a weird Japanese RPG is what I feel like playing. And so I was looking at what I have and, um, and I wound up with Shadow Hearts, which I had never played before, though I know that it's made by Nautilus, which is a bunch of ex-SNK devs who previously made Athena. So it was, you know, it was all, I mean, the Athena RPG. So it was all kind of like in my head. And I was like, all right, this is the game that I want to play. And then I played it for a few hours and found a lot of interesting things about it. And I feel like I learned some stuff. And, you know, it's great. I love being able to browse my physical collection like I'm in a game shop, except it's all mine already. <laughs> and I can just I can just take it off the shelf. I'm quite jealous of that. Like I have um I have lots of friends. I'm <laughs> not showing off. No, like I'll go to friends' houses that have like big um <laughs> game collections and I'm so intensely jealous because like for years I just, I mean even now I don't really have any money, but for years I had really no money but and so i i lived on a cycle of of trading so there are very very few games that i actually kind of held on to and there are several that i've traded in that i deeply regret uh in retrospect um <laughs> sure. but because like I've, I've gone that far now it's like in order to actually build a collection it would be a massive amount of work and money uh so i don't unless you know something happens that i'm suddenly have this big windfall i don't think that'll happen but I do right. like I do like who doesn't love a bunch of shelves with a bunch of stuff on? It's it's the best. Yeah, well, I mean, there there are definitely people that don't, um, and I, I've I've met several of them. But the for me, you know, the reason I can have this giant collection is similar. I mean, it's probably partially because I didn't have much money, uh, and it, you know, I bought things I bought things cheap. And then I never let go of them because I was like, well, I have this now. So that means I, ha I have to keep it because yeah. this is, this is, this, this, sh this is, you know, what I, this is what I paid for. Like yeah. I, if I'm spending my money on stuff, I got to keep it. And so, you know, there's no way I could buy even a quarter of the things that I have now because of the prices that they currently are. Um, cause I, you know, I've got. I've got a couple thousand games here in my house and it would it would just be it would be impossible but I have found that through patience I am able to acquire quite a lot um you know going to going to thrift stores and traveling to different countries yeah uh on somebody else's dime I as long as I keep my eyes open and I'm always looking around. I'm gonna find some pretty cool stuff. That's exciting. Like I was, I was wondering, like thinking about you setting up this uh, this website in university and stuff. And was that kind of before or after you kind of discovered um, these sort of obscure gems? Like, do you think that's that that high of you know feeling like you've discovered something was one of the sort of things that prompted you to really want to write about it? And then it kind of has that continued on through your life. No, it was definitely one of the things that prompted me to write. Ha having this feeling that there was cool stuff that I wanted to share with people. Yeah. But but the the people to share with were not anywhere near be near me except for except for Vince. 
And so Vince and I started this website. And originally it was pretty much just about like, check out this cool, weird stuff. And, you know, I was also studying Japanese at the time. So I was doing a lot of reading of Japanese game websites and putting out news that nobody else was aware of because they couldn't read the language. Ah, cool. Um, and I, I do wonder how many things I mistranslated because Google Translate didn't really exist at the time. And my Japanese was not fantastic <laughs> either. Uh, it was all right, though. But anyway, um, yeah, that was the initial drive. And then then it sort of turned into a criticism angle because of the kind of the people that we had assembled. It was, you know, with um, Tim Rogers and this guy, Eric John, and eventually Frank and Matthew. We all had, you know, ideas about how people should talk about games. I don't really care about that anymore. But um, at the time, we felt it was really important to push that, you know, subjectivity is paramount. Like there's no... There's no way for me to tell you that you should like or not like this game, but I can let you get to know me and I can tell you whether I like it. Yeah. And that's much better information for you because if it's like this is a guy that doesn't like fighting games, he doesn't like 3D fighting games and he does like this game, that tells me something interesting. So when did it kind of become kind of a career option or at least like a job option? Well, that was just sort of through necessity because I, uh, when my college girlfriend was like, hey, uh, my parents need to know what you're going to do with your life as a job. I was like, man, that's weird. Yeah, that's she's really like, weird. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she's like, well, just, you know, just like tell me, tell me anything because like I don't, I don't really care. I just want them to not ask me this question. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I guess since I'm already doing it, maybe I'll write about video games. She's like, all right. And once I had said that, then it, you know, I didn't have any other plans because <laughs> <laughs> I, I hated making movies and I had no skills. So <laughs> um, the, only, the only thing that I had that one could possibly call a skill was writing, though I did not consider myself to be a particularly... Uh, outstanding writer and still do not consider myself that way. Um, you know, I realize that nobody can tell the difference more or less between <laughs> a competent writer and an outstanding writer. People just, they don't know. And so whatever. <clears throat> so I decided that I would do that. And then I graduated from college and started applying for jobs. I was getting all kinds of job offers when I was running insert credit all the time. And then as soon as I was looking for jobs, well, actually I did, I did get a few offers, but I didn't, I didn't like any of them. So I didn't, I didn't do it. And then I wound up working for game developer magazine. Most of the companies that were talking about hiring me or were interested or whatever, they knew insert credit. And because of that, they had these expectations of me that I had to kind of like subvert in order to get them to agree because they're like, you guys are really pushing game journalism in a weird direction. And so I want to make sure that you can 
follow my stupid style guide. And I was like, well, your style guide blows, so maybe maybe I won't. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the only uh, publication that hired me was, or that w- was interested in hiring me, was Game Developer, who had never never heard of me before so that, <laughs> that, that, that was why i got hired and like working for game developer magazine like were you given your your kind of voracious interest at this point like were you aware of kind of the intricacies of of building games like did you have any programming experience or did that kind of did you just pick nope. stuff of that up while working at the magazine so i still have no programming experience like i i have done light scripting but that that is you know that's basically it's basically nothing so <clears throat> i guess um, i just mean like how much of the nuts and bolts of like actual game development were you kind of aware of yeah i would say that like like your average armchair uh video game enthusiast these days i felt like i knew a fair bit to some extent yeah and was very but very quick, quickly realized how wrong i was and can <laughs> continued to learn about the wide variety of things that I do not know about in in the game industry and in the making of games and that that continued throughout really even as I started to work on games the the stuff that I was working on was like writing or having ideas which was essentially the same thing I had always done yeah so you know I still I'm 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 not a programmer at all. I can't do art. I can't do music. I have opinions about art and music and can push people in a direction, but I can't do anything. So <laughs> um, so it's it's still like at at this point I have to rely on other people knowing what they're doing and they rely on me knowing what I'm doing in the areas where I can do things, and and I guess that's what teamwork is. Absolutely, um, but like working for Game Development Magazine, like did you, like, are there any instances of like learning something about how a game was made, or or, or the, the the methods people use to make certain games that kind of switched your oh, yeah. opinions, or or really like games that you thought were terrible that suddenly were just these monuments to ingenuity and things like that. Well, I. You know, I don't think there were any real epiphany moments aside from some hilarious hacks and stuff that I learned about. But in general, I learned that people are generally trying their best. Yeah. And they're working real hard to do stuff. And external, I learned a lot more, I guess I would say, about the external factors that come into play with game development, things you can't or you couldn't control as much back then, like budgets and timelines and release schedules and these sorts of things. I think release schedules and and all that are a lot more fluid than they used to be, but it, it would be quite often in the past, you know, this, this developer gets a license and they get, you know, a hundred thousand bucks and they got three months and they got to make this thing. And there's just no, that's, there's no wiggle room there. It's got to be done, and you got to do it. And that was pretty interesting for me. And another thing, I guess, was going to Japan a lot more 
and talking to developers there and learning just how siloed they all were. Like just even within one company, two teams would be making two different games that, and they weren't allowed to talk to each other and they were using completely different engines even though they're both third-person action games or whatever. They weren't and allowed to talk to each other? No, well, not not specifically about the game. And they had code names for games internally in the company so that, like, say there was, I don't know, Castlevania and uh, and Metal Gear or something being worked on within one studio they would they would be like you know m project and c project and <laughs> uh and you know they'd have code names and whatever for internal use until the game is out so that nobody could cross pollinate or leak ideas also there's like sort of like microsoft you know has the caustic um hierarchy where people are supposed to compete with each other yeah, to yeah, get yeah. ahead and that that is a very real thing or has been a very real thing in the Japanese game industry. A lot of people are trying to change it now. Not a lot, but some. And you know, I mean it's obviously pretty caustic. Yeah, no, that's the worst. Um so so at this point then when you're you know, you're you've got a job and you're starting to kind of like I'm thinking that going to Japan as someone with your kind of um love of of discovery and, and finding new games so that must have been incredible like did you go kind of fully research we're like okay this is where i'm going to go this is what i'm going to get like do you have your your white whales of video games so with the the very first time i went it was actually during college um i took out an extra loan from the school and used it to go to japan with <laughs> um and i bought a whole bunch of games and did some things, you know, I was pretty much just kind of looking for whatever. I had some specific stuff, but uh, nowadays when I go, I have I have a list of things that I'm looking for and trying to find. Um, but yeah, it was, it was all right going there. It was, you know, with Game Developer Magazine, I got hired in September, I think of 2004 and Tokyo Game Show was in October and so I basically went to the editor-in-chief like a week in and I was like hey uh, I speak Japanese let me go to Tokyo Game Show and I'll come back with a bunch of interesting writing about it and they said okay and oh, they took good. a chance, and I went out there, and <clears throat> you know, I was the only person that got an interview with Yuji Naka. Uh, that whole, like, during Tokyo Game Show, uh, because I saw him, I saw him standing by the, you know, that Rub Rabbits game for the DS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, I guess it was called Feel the Magic XXXY in Japan. And he he was just standing near it, watching people play it. And I was like, oh, hey, I know who that guy is. That's Yuji Naka. So I just went up and interviewed him in Japanese. And uh, and there it was. <clears throat> so I was able to go around and just get up in people's faces and put a recorder there and ask them some questions. And so it 
that was nice. It made me feel like some of the things I had studied and some of the things I had learned were were actually coming together for an actual purpose. That's good. That's good. Um, I'm going to grab a quick drink if you want to just take a second. Is that all right? Yeah, let me do that as well. I'll be right back to you. Um, so Interestingly, gonna... while you sorry, just while while you were gone, I received my Mega Drive copy of Star Cruiser that I ordered in the mail. Exciting! Um, is is that one of your the games on your list? It it hopped up onto my list very recently because. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but I recently did this kind of tweet storm about the creator of Star Cruiser, who... I did see this, actually, yes. It was really interesting. But yeah. please elaborate. Well, she's one of the first pr- people making 3D games, really, on in Japan. She made some games in the late 80s that were... 3D for the Japanese PCs, like the PC-88, etc. Mm-hmm. And Star Cruiser. Star Cruiser was the one that really kind of broke through. It's the first uh, first-person shooter RPG, and it's also in space. And it's pretty cool, and I basically f- dis- sort of discovered it. I, I was vaguely aware of it, but I discovered it through the soundtrack to the Mega Drive version. Okay. Which is really, truly excellent. And I listened to it while I was in Poland last week working with my team on some stuff. And I, I kept, you know, coming back to this soundtrack when whenever I had to eat lunch or something, I would be listening to this. And so I started looking into the people that made it, and I found out about this creator who is like a insane um assembly programmer and what's what's her name her name is kotori yoshimura and she was a co-founder of technosoft who made thunder force and all that and then left to do her own thing and then made star cruiser and whatever and so i was researching her and she had had at one point declining health and difficulty ma- maintaining a job. She got like fired from treasure and stuff. And <clears throat> a lot of this was related to her having uh, issues with gender identity. And so now I, you know, I was like learning all this stuff about her and it was really interesting. And then I found her, her Twitter and there at the top was a pinned tweet saying, if this, if this tweet gets a thousand retweets, I will start working again on a game like Star Cruiser. And, you know, she's, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how old she is. She's been working in this industry for 40 years, basically. Mm-hmm. And it just feel, felt like something that even if it didn't, like retweets don't equal money or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. But just to make, and this tweet was two years old, uh, with 300 retweets on it, and just like it, how maybe this would be a really gratifying feeling for this person if they wake up 
and this two-year-old tweet uh, about you know showing that people care about this thing gets all the way up there. So I that's why I wrote this whole long tweet thing about her history and the stuff she's done. And then within 24 hours, we had a thousand more retweets on it than it had had before. Amazing. And did you, what, what happened next? Like, did you hear back? Yeah. So she does want to start working on it. And she sort of feels like if people are going to care, if there are people out there that are interested, then maybe she can actually push forward and do something about it. So she's she's started talking about ideas and stuff. She's written a novel that she kind of wants to integrate with this universe. So that that's where the base of the story is going to be. And she now has a, a partner who is uh, a life partner and a work partner. So the two of them together will be able to do more than just one of them could have done. So it's, you know, who knows what will happen, but it seems like, I don't know. It's, it was, you know, talking to her has been a bit weird because from her perspective, it's like, who's this foreign weirdo who's (laughs) suddenly all up in my business, you know? And (laughs) it's very understandable to have a kind of a, a, skeptical reaction to that but um i think we're i just translated i spent half of yesterday which is more than i should have spent spent half of yesterday translating an an interview with her for a for a publication and i think through that process we've come to a greater understanding that's been kind of nice yeah that's that's super nice um i'm gonna i'm gonna take a, a brief uh, aside to ask i mean these are relatively quick fire questions but take as long as you want it's just i ask everybody these questions so mm-hmm. brandon if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul what game are you best at oh you're saying if i have to play a game and i would die if i if i fail no you're playing a game with death like you know seven oh, seal for my soul. journey got style got it um Hmm. Well, let's see. If death is around me, it's like I don't have that much of a shot no matter what. So I may as well just play something I really like. So I might actually play uh, Oscar 120%. It depends on if death is any good at it, because if they're not any good, it won't be very fun. I think there have been kind of vague rules set up around this uh, as time has gone on that death is is not an expert in any particular field. They're just overall very good at video games. I see. So Hmm. if you have the edge in one version, then you're probably going to win. Well, I'm not really trying to think about whether I'm going to survive because death, like death is, that's going to come for me one way or another. So, uh, and it could trick me or something. So I'm just going to have a fun time. I'll say, I'll say Oscar 120%, even though I definitely... I don't think I would win, but I would have a fun time. Uh, are you a competitive game player? And have you ever been locked in any prolonged high score battles? I mean, we've already mentioned the POP one, but... Um, I don't consider myself to be particularly competitive, but I have been a high scorer on a couple of things. I was, I was number two on the Fez leaderboards <laughs> uh, at one point because I, I glitched a few of those hypercubes. 
before some other people did. Um, I was also number two, no, I was number one at this free-to-play tower offense game called Princess Pajama, made by Blueside. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, that's kind of a funny one because somebody, like, heard that I liked this game and they were like, hey, I'm kind of having, I'm, I'm struggling with this game. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you do to make this easier? And I told him the exact strategy. And he was like, oh, man, all right, I guess that's, that's. And, and this was like two years after I had played it. I just immediately remembered, like, <laughs> put all your money into the Lancer, mostly spam that one. And then you need the wizard to, to like, take care of the guys that block. Just put a few of those behind. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the strategy. The end. <laughs> Do you, do you do that? I mean, from the way you described that, like, are you are you someone who's kind of uh, like I'm? I'm always curious when I watch stuff like the games then quick and stuff. Like, how how do you how do you discover these things? How do you play a game? I mean, actually, no. This I'm 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 rambling now, but this this came up on the show before. Where one of the reasons why we 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 suppose people would be some come so good at these games is that it was the only game they had certainly there there are feats i can do in alex kid and miracle world because it was the only game i had for a year and so i could kind of play it blindfolded essentially but like are you someone who kind of is always poking at the corners of games and trying to discover little shortcuts and glitches so i would say i do i do poke at the corners i would also say i'm not very good at games in general probably but I do, I like to see what the boundaries are all the time. I, the first game I ever had a fantasy about making was a game where kind of clipping through walls and getting over to the other side was, was sort of a goal. Yeah. And, and that, you know, pushing against the boundaries of the world would, would lead to, to other things. And I never have made anything like that, but that's... I do. I, I like that kind of stuff, and even though I'm not really competitive or anything, when I see someone pl- like doing a stream of Bonk's Revenge or something that I've played, you know, dozens of times, and I see them like passing over all these secrets or like not doing things the way I do, I would do them. I get, yeah. I get frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you, uh, if you are someone who is prone to such things, what what is your worst rage quit? I can't even remember. I definitely rage quit um, Clash Royale all the time, though. Okay. Like if I, if they're throwing at me like this, this guy who's like two levels below me, but all of his stuff is like way higher than mine, and all he basically, all his cards are really high, and all he has to do is kind of plop them down. I just uh, uh, turn off my iPad and throw it across the room i don't actually throw it across the room but i do i do give it a little toss yeah um uh, given the the kind of the range of potential emotions that video games are able to evoke uh uh, laughter is one of the rarest so brandon what games have really made you laugh i would say games that have made me laugh are games that i'm playing with other people and it's not like it's not 100% that they make me laugh on purpose, but yeah. that something cute happens or something interesting happens. That That's good. Well, on the, the opposite end of the, the spectrum, like 
your webcomic that, that that you made, which was amazing, was essentially like dealing with a breakup in, in not so many ways. Like, are there games or games that you go to to kind of help with that? You know, this kind of like warm blanket games, so to speak. Hmm. I'm not sure. I think that I wouldn't want to play any game that I already knew and liked when I was really sad because then maybe I would associate sad memories with it instead of happiness. Um, But there have been games that I've played when I'm sick, which is the closest thing I can think of, uh, which is mostly that's when I play your your American RPGs that have the do-anything-go-anywhere kind of deal where, where it's just like, I can't I can't do anything because I'm just struggling not to throw up. So I'm going to, I'm going to live in this, in this world of stupid dragons and terrible lines that otherwise I would not be involved with. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, so, so what kind of, I, what prompted the, the shift from purely writing about games to, to making games? Um, I got bored is pretty much what happened. I felt at a certain point that I had... Unless I wanted to find some way to become a better writer, I had achieved what I could achieve, pretty much. And, you know, it was still cool to help unknown developers get known and to write about games that people didn't know about. Like, I was an early advocate of deadly premonition i was just telling um uh someone yesterday that when when deadly premonition came out and people were like who's this sweary guy the only english language resource for information about him was an article i had published about him back in 2003 on insert credit which was very amusing that's amazing um anyway uh what made me do it was, yeah, it was, I was kind of bored. I was kind of restless and I wanted some new challenges and also working for game developer magazine. It was supposed to be by game developers for game developers and none of us were at that time. Okay. So it felt like something that should happen. And it's also, you know, working for them, that was probably the only place where I could, I could work and, develop games at the same time without it being a compl- conflict of interest. It was actually complementary to our yeah, interest. Yeah, absolutely. So that was lucky and nice. So I started doing writing for video games and because I, I, I was at GDC and I went to the Game Connection section, which is where there are a bunch of kind of <clears throat> largely struggling and or foreign game developers looking for publishers or looking for work for hire or whatever else. Yeah. And there was this Thai game developer. There were actually two in the same spot. And they had these awesome posters that I really liked. So I was like, hey, you guys, I like your, I like your stuff. I think it looks cool. Um, if you need a writer, I went to film school. This <laughs> 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 is basically how I pitched myself. And so I wound up actually doing a rewrite of one game for them and then writing a completely original game for them as well and then doing a naturalization of another game. 
Um, what sort of games were they that you were writing for? Well, the first one was called Barnyard Blast, Swine of the Night. Nice. It's a Castlevania and run-and-gun combo. That <laughs> this game just was... sounds better and better. Yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't great, but it had kind of fun music, and it had... I mean, you start as a pig with a cowboy hat uh, and a whip and a gun, and it's... It's a bit silly and weird, and it's you know it's it's by no means fantastic. And what they really wanted was, you know, memes didn't exist as a concept yet, but they okay. wanted they wanted memes in there. And so uh, the, even the writing, though people loved it, is a bit embarrassing to me now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I wrote for that. There was a script, but I I basically rewrote it and added jokes, and also wrote an ending because they didn't have one. And then the the next one was a it was uh it was called Dolphin Trainer DS and it was basically about you know it was a game for, sort of for kids about training a dolphin to do tricks and stuff. Okay. And but the story I wrote was very Harvest Moon like you run a mom and pop water park and uh and a big corporate one moves right next to you and then you got to figure out how to survive as they're like taking your customers but ultimately you all come together and you're all friends and then everybody uh, everybody's happy because everybody loves animals <laughs> that, was, that was that was the story so i did that i also did a lot of minor things like you know writing writing quiz questions for the for the updated Quiz and Dragons on the Capcom oh, amazing. arcade collection. Or, man, I don't even remember. There's so many weird, tiny things that I've wound up doing that n nobody will ever know about. I, I did the, I don't even know what to call it. I did like an art consulting direction on a Texas Hold'em game made by Tose, the stealth Japanese video game developer that's worked <laughs> on thousands of games since the 70s. I also published two apps of theirs on the App Store, um, and th those are gone now. But I I don't know. It's there, There's been a lot of just weird, tiny stuff in addition to things that actually pay me. I, I wrote all the names of the rune the rune magic in dragon's crown this is this is such a, this is such an obscure and eclectic cv of uh, like previous <laughs> yeah. cakes very few of them are on that cv even <laughs> it's it's yeah it is what it is uh, i did cinemora as well i did the naturalization for that game and that's getting an ex version right now and I had kind of wished that they would have contacted me earlier so that I could have rewritten a bunch of the dialogue to make it make make the story more uh straightforward and easy to understand. This is this is amazing. Um like I'm I'm curious like what what sort of games were you playing around this point because you know you have these kind of formative experiences with these relatively like obscure titles and I'm assuming you would continue to have sort those out. So I guess just while you're 
deciding to go off and try and make your own games and get involved in games like what games are you playing what games are really inspiring you i suppose uh these days or as i was starting to do that just as you were starting to do that and i guess these days as well so back then i was i was finally realizing that like american games had turned a corner they i always made fun of them because you know like on the on the genesis and the mega drive i don't know how many of the american games you all got but we we just had all this garbage from oh there's a lot of really bad games from acclaim and flying edge which are the same company and you know just i mean your oceans and whatnot yeah uh and they were embarrassing and they were they were just not very good sometimes they had something really cool about them but as a whole they just weren't really there and i feel like the early 2000s at least on the console side on pc it happened way earlier i just wasn't a pc person but on the console side American-made games were starting to actually be really good. And, you know, I still had a bunch of friends who were like, Japanese games are the only games. And so I started to be an advocate for like, no, you know, actually we, like, Gears of War may have Broman in it, but the mechanics are actually extremely solid. And, like, when was when was the last time before this that you played a legitimately good co-op game? Yeah, absolutely. And... So it was I was playing a lot of stuff like that. I was playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Uh Oh wait, no, not Modern Warfare. I was playing Call of Duty 2. The the I think that was World War 2. Yeah. Um it because the sound design was amazing in this game. Like you could actually tell where things were coming from based on like on a stereo TV. Yeah. Because they they had that, you know, that 3D stereo thing going on. And it worked really well. And so I was playing games like that alongside, you know, Valkyria Chronicles and and Jean d'Arc and whatever interesting Japanese games came out as well. But it was interesting this t- during this time to watch American games really succeed and Japanese games really struggle uh, because the legacy of PC and the legacy of frankly just talking to each other about how to make games at gdc and game developer magazine for many years meant that a lot of a lot more problems were solved or solvable in the west than they were in japan where nobody was talking to each other uh they had kind of dragged their feet on getting into the next generation and so it was this huge technology ramp instead of like let's hire some guys that worked on Unreal. And then we're going to know how to do this already. Yeah. Kind of thing. So watching them struggle as Western games were really coming into their own and, and forging their own genres and, and also kind of, you know, taking over some genres like the, just in general, the action genre shifted way West. Absolutely. And so that, I don't know. It was it was an interesting time. I I still want more of the kinds of Japanese video games that were made in the 90s, but I'm not going to get them. So <laughs> I mean, that has been quite good like I'd say the past year or so 
there's been like i've played a lot of really excellent japanese games like yes so like way more than i have in the past like five years i'd say even yeah um, there 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 are good ones it it's they're not the type of the type that were made in the 90s but that is because of the i mean a lot of that was down to the kinds of constraints that were placed upon yeah. people at those times and those constraints no longer exist and I was I was talking to who was it that was saying this? It may have been it may have been sweary in fact. We were talking about this this very phenomenon and he or whoever else it was I I honestly don't remember was saying that they feel that Japanese game developers work best when they're given a box and and the edict like do whatever you can inside of this box okay that's interesting. Uh, like all the way out to the margins you can figure something out but give them you know like just a a blank you know like give them infinity and they're like i don't know what to do for this period then when we're talking about you know japan kind of uh lost its mojo for a while like as someone who who would sort of seek out games like were there or are there games you think that have been out like Japanese games maybe that have gone under the radar just because they weren't they weren't seen as the popular and the the best games anymore. Hmm. That's a good question. I think more of the successful ones were on handhelds. Okay. Because that didn't require the jump to as new of a technology really. Yeah. So I mentioned Jean d'Arc, which is a tactics RPG uh, that really smoothed out a lot of the issues that tactics RPGs have of memorization and doing lots of clicks. And it had this great mechanic where you could basically transform into your god armor. <laughs> and when you do that, if you defeat an enemy, you get another turn. And by the end of the game, you've got, you know, five characters that have this ability. And so you wind up just like zooming around the battlefield, cleaning up all these enemies if you plan it right. And it's pretty cool. It feels it feels good. So that, that, that was a good What one. system is that on? P, uh, PSP. PSP. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're... I mean, it's not really under the radar, radar, but Valkyria Chronicles is fantastic. Oh, it's so good. Um, yeah, and I I played the second one quite a bit. Uh, this is, I guess, a little bit earlier, but I I like the Zetai Zetsume Toshi series that came out as Raw Danger and Disaster Report, at least in the U.S. I think they may yeah, have been yeah. called something else elsewhere. Uh, they were. But... Are they the kind of the, the earthquake games and stuff? Yes. I also feel that near at the time, you know, people people are all pretending like they played the heck out of Nier now that Nier Automata <laughs> is very popular. But at the time, people did not like that game. And that is an excellent game. I love it. That's It's like <clears throat> one of my top five of the generation, I would say. Because it's it's clumsy and it's clunky, but the music is fantastic and the sense of place is just really 
second to none, and all the ideas in there were pretty nuts. Um, I didn't like all the swearing in it. I found it kind of grating, but uh, apparently that was an edict from above, so... Okay. <laughs> whatever. Made an um, appeal to the kids. But, like, you know, I, I did almost everything in that game. I I completed all the fishing that everybody was supposedly hated for some reason. I don't know. The fishing was all right. It was actually pretty fun as long as you, you know, just did it in the right areas. You just had to look around a little bit. I never uh, I never played Nier. I'm not going to be one of those people. Although I am playing Nier Automata now. I'm enjoying yeah. it very much. Uh, the original Nier is good, and I haven't played the new one yet because I don't have a PS4, but I'm... I'm worried because I don't like Platinum Combat very much. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. Is there... Can you articulate why? I'm, I'm only well, asking because I think I think it's the best, probably. Like, Bayonetta, I think, is probably my favorite kind of action, third-person action game ever, probably. I, Bayonetta is the best of theirs for me because I got bored of the combat in an hour and a half instead of 15 minutes. So um, basically, it's I have, I have this why am I doing this problem. So on the one end of the spectrum, you've got um, Dark Souls, where you, you have to learn the length of the animation and the, the, you know, the, the hitbox and everything of your specific weapon in order to succeed. And even then, the game's still going to throw nonsense at you that's going to kill you yeah. uh, w without your knowing about it. And doing all of that feels like work. It's not fun for me. And so, you know, after struggling with it for a while, I feel like, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I here? Why am I pressing these buttons for something that's not enjoyable for me? Then... There's the platinum side of things where you just like everything's so fluid and there's so much and there and there's so many potential combos and so many things and they all happen instantly. And it's almost an option paralysis thing because like I could do all of these kinds of combos, but I don't have to. Uh, there's nothing saying that I should or there's no particular reason that this needs to happen. And so I just wind up hitting X and, uh, <laughs> and beating all the enemies, just hitting X. And so then at a certain point, I'm like, well, why am I doing this? Because it's so fluid and straightforward. Why can't I just have this combat be over already? Because I'm just hitting X. And that's how I feel about Platinum Combat. So... <laughs> that's that yeah no, i mean i i absolutely fully understand that like i i i get that with um uh any any kind like any rpg where there's no real any any japanese rpg generally i get to that stage quite quickly the the only exception being um uh, final fantasy 12 which is a mm -hmm. masterpiece but like like final fantasy 15 ever like i i don't think i lasted more than an hour because I'm not doing, I'm doing nothing. I'm making no right. choices. I'm pressing buttons in sequence. And I get the choice thing with Bayonetta. Nia kind of, eh, I, I'd say it doesn't really solve it. It's, it hints at kind of complex um, action, but it's not really. 
it's just slow. You just have to press it a lot more times. And it looks beautiful, but there's no yeah. real tactics in it. Bayonetta is perfect to me because it is. it gets to that stage where it feels like you're playing an instrument where, you know, you, you know the exact... But, like, I, I love rhythm action games. Like, I think I really... I just love doing things perfectly. I get great satisfaction out of that. So that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why Platinum games, like, I love them so much. Because you can, you can perfect them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I can see that. And I don't get satisfaction out of doing things perfectly. I just want to... <clears throat> I want to hang out in a place. That's my main thing that I want to do. And I realize that they have to put... <clears throat> like combat there to annoy me so yeah. that I can then enjoy the other parts more. But I don't like playing uncharted. I just want to jump around and find stuff. That's all I want to do. I don't want to shoot guys. I hate it. It's no fun for me. And I know it's got to be there, but I'm always like, does it have to be this long? Do I have to do this for this amount of time? It just doesn't. And it makes me sad. Yeah, no, there is like Uncharted was at its best when you're just walking about, looking at things, and you know, mm-hmm. picking things up. It's it's amazing. Have you have you seen? Um, uh, I spoke to JP LeBreton ages ago now, actually, probably last year sometime. But he has his um, I can't think of what it's called now. But he 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 mods old games basically and just removes old combat, so you can just go and just be in the world and explore. Like that, oh, that's nice. the sole purpose. I, I mean, it's got a good name as well. I can't think of it. But just old, old a lot of the early kind of 3D um, shooters and stuff, he just takes out all the shooting so you can just go and explore Thief or Doom or something. Um, that's cool. Is, I actually didn't know that he was doing that and I should look into it because that's the kind of thing I like. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Um, um, other, other games from that era, Bullet Witch, which is another Kavya game like Nier. Bullet Witch is interesting because it starts you off in a Midwestern American town, but it's uh, Japan's idea of one of those. So oh, good. It, it looks a bit odd, and it like the game starts at sundown, and so it's got this just really weird lighting and vibe, and all the shadows are intersecting with each other in bad ways and making everything shimmer, but it all works together to create this kind of surreal experience and it's a pretty fun game they also were experimenting with physics and stuff so you have like a uh, a push magic that you can hit things away from yourself with and smash them into enemies and stuff and and deforming the world and doing weird stuff with that which was pretty cool the of course drawback of that is your push does, is not only in front of you. Sometimes it extends a bit behind you. And so if there's like a trash can nearby and it happens to clip your leg, then you just instantly die. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I like I like that game. Uh, I'm trying to think if there are any other. Well, maybe that's enough. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's grand. Like, what about kind of recently, I guess? Like, are there... Do you think... I? I I'm wondering, like, do you think there's been a game that has come along in, in the past, like, let's say 10 years to put a bracket around it, that's kind of shifted, you know, what you thought about games? Like, do you, do you, or rather, like, do you think your your kind of understanding of games was quite kind of... Oh, no, it's, it's, you know it's I mean? never like... been... I do. Uh, it, my, my understanding of games is not, is not set in stone, certainly. I would say that 
you know, I mentioned it already, but Valkyria Chronicles definitely changed some ideas, some of the ways I thought about making games because it's it's a tactics RPG that doesn't use a grid and that makes that lets you do all kinds of stuff that and none of it is tedious. Well, that's not totally true, but very little of it is tedious. It takes away a lot of the tedium and so many of the clicks and also just it it feels so much more natural and that's really one of those games where it's like just because a thing has always been done one way doesn't mean it needs to be done that way again. Absolutely. Um, having the idea of, you know, range for, for movement in a, in a circle has been around for some time. Like, uh, longer. So did it arc the lad did it for PS2, but the way they do it here is, you know, it's like a stamina bar and that just conceptually makes a lot of sense. And, you know, they put in cover, which hardly any tactics games have that are Japanese, you know, like XCOM had it, but that wasn't there in a 3D um, tactics game for, at least in Japan. And then, you know, the... Since you have guns, like it makes sense that when things go by, you should be able to shoot at them. Like, frankly, a lot of these ideas are similar to XCOM, but the way that they were done in Valkyria Chronicles was like, all right, so this this genre truly can evolve. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And in terms of others that were real revelatory, um, it's hard to say, but sometimes I see people make games and i'm i'm jealous that they made them (laughs) um Um, are are you still like as excited like now about games as as you ever have been probably i would say that less of my excitement is forward-looking though probably because i'm an old person but (laughs) um I'm. I remain excited to dig through the past and find, because I'm. I'm way more excited about firsts and and clumsy attempts than I am about the smoothest version of a thing. Okay. It's just way more, way more interesting, and I feel like I can learn a lot more by from a clumsy effort than I can from a polished effort. Because when I see something really polished, it's like, all right throw 60 smart people at this and you're going to get something amazing. I know that. Like, I already know that. But when five people tried to do that thing 15 years ago, that the the, the lessons are more in your face and they're, yeah. they're, they're, the lessons are almost smaller but because they're tackling bigger subjects in... So I mean, when I say smaller, I mean more f- finite you can like yeah no, I know what you mean. but like <clears throat> there's a game called pup pup breeder for the saturn this is as far as i can tell the first fully 3d real-time strategy game that exists and it came out on the saturn a console in 1995 from japan and that's weird 
But yeah. based on my research and talking to people, I can't find an earlier fully 3D real-time strategy game. Even I'm, on computers <clears throat> and stuff, which is I'm, weird. But what were you... Were you fighting dogs? That seems that seems odd. No, uh, you... I think it's it's just one of those weird titles. You have these little creature things that they call pups. Oh, okay, and, okay. And they're trying to, like attack these nodes and stuff and eventually they get eggs and but there's not very much the breeding that happens is largely in in menus so it's a bit okay um, i was i had like a a nintendogs command and conquer style mashup in my head which which would also be amazing um i i think we've covered all sorts of good stuff brandon but if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention then please take this opportunity now or, or you know tell people where they can find your stuff things like that Mm, yeah, so all the I guess one thing I would say is that all of the game playing experience that I have had is sort of reflected in the kind of games that we make. They're very in a kind of Sega PC Engine vein um, going in that direction. So. You know, we've got our pseudo 3D race, racer, Odeer, which is out in beta form on Humble right now. Uh, we're going to put it on some other things soon. We have Gunhouse, which is a tactics tower defense game, which has a, a bad tutorial that we're figuring out how to fix. But we're, we're, we're putting in controller support for that now because we're going to bring it to some other platforms. Is this and, all on PC or Mac or... Um, yes, those are all, those are PC, but also, well, no, Gunhouse is not yet on PC. It will be. Right now it's iOS, Android. Okay. But Odeer is PC, PC, Mac, and Linux. And we got a game called Gunsport, which is cyberpunk volleyball with guns, which is kind of a my, micro esports thing. Uh, it's very influenced by King of Fighters 2001. Oh, that's and a good poll. Hey, you need to explain that connection. Oh, it's just... I really like how that game looks. Um, King of Fighters 2001. So the... Kind of the background and character art style is influenced by that. It doesn't... It's, of course, not looking directly like it, but you've got slender characters, um, crowded backgrounds, and that's pretty much that and then it's also influenced by Windjammers. So it's it's pretty SNK oriented. Amazing. And yeah, you can find all of our stuff at necrosoftgames.com and we yeah, we we don't we don't have a lot of success, but we enjoy making the things that we want to make and we have found ways to survive while not having to make anything for anyone else so that's nice that's good that that's a win all around um that was brilliant brandon i really enjoyed chatting was that okay for you yeah thanks it was fun 